Hello and welcome to the Impact Podcast from us at Impact Wales. We're Finn and Jane and every week we'll be bringing you lots of discussion, comments and opinion on everything research and education. We'll be talking professional learning, what's happening in the education world and everything in between to help you make a difference in your school. This week we're delighted to welcome Chris Such to our podcast and his book The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading which is a wonderful book and one we'd highly recommend to both primary and secondary teachers across curriculum. Good morning Chris. Good morning it's a pleasure to be here thanks for inviting me. Chris before we start would you mind we haven't actually introduced you as your yeah. you know what your role is would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Of course, yeah. So a brief version of that is um, I've worked in education on some level since 2006. Almost all of that time has been spent as a primary school teacher and school leader, though I've also worked briefly um, in secondary schools as a key stage three uh, intervention teacher. And this means, in effect, that in that time I've taught readers and struggling readers from reception all the way up to kind of 14 year olds. Most recently, in the last kind of five or six years or so, I've become really fascinated by the research into reading. Uh, I started working with some initial teacher training providers, um, supporting them in the in the work that they do. And that led to me writing the book that you've mentioned. And in the last 18 months or so, um, it led to me working with Ambition Institute, co-designing their national professional qualification in leading literacy and working as a reading and curriculum independent consultant, working with uh, schools, with multi-academy trusts, with uh, English hubs, with and also with national and international organisations like uh, the International Dyslexia Association, for example. Um, I've been out of the classroom for 18 months or so, and I'm already itching to, to get back in and I'm looking forward to doing so. Thank you. We just want to reiterate how awesome your book is. We've both read it and it's it is fabulous. It's a little bit like a, a Bible for teaching, reading, decoding and reading comprehension as well. But we're going to focus in on reading comprehension today. And before we start, we've got a situation here in Wales, which you know needs a little bit of exploring first. So I know that we sent you an email with lots of information in it. So you're you're up to date with it. But it just for our listeners, if we just kind of set out where we are in Wales. So your book actually covers all of the elements of um, teaching of reading, but it's the reading comprehension teaching in Wales that we want to talk about, because I don't know if you know, do you know Rob Randall? I do indeed, yeah. I've appeared on a couple of podcasts uh, with him in the past, like I think Teachers Talk Radio. Right, uh, okay. Yeah, fan of his work. Yeah, fantastic because obviously Rob has been on our podcast for three times he's done a hat trick here and he's he's fabulous and he is focused um on um decoding so we want to talk about to you about teaching reading comprehension because in fact in Wales we're currently bottom um in terms of the UK in terms of the four home countries for PISA we've we've got a brand new curriculum here which means that we've got the perfect opportunity to you know turn around uh, and do something different from teaching of the reading comprehension because obviously what we're doing at the moment and historically isn't working in terms of improving reading um we know that COVID has had a negative impact on on reading in wales um we've got national reading tests here so we've got uh reading tests that go from i think it's um year two to year nine um that test reading skills and we've also recently, I think in the last couple of months, Estin, our inspectorate here in Wales, put out 
um, a thematic report on the teaching of reading to 10 to 14 year olds, which I, I'm sure we will get into later. So talking about reading as um, researched informed teaching of reading comprehension, and they listed quite a few things that that was part of that. And the, the ones that they picked out specifically were uh, guided reading, reciprocal reading, shared reading and independent reading. All of those four were listed as um, being really effective, researched, informed approaches to reading. So just to kind of put you on the spot, Chris, what do you think of the situation in Wales as it currently is? Well, from what you've described, obviously, if you are struggling with the teaching of comprehension in terms of outcomes, then it might be worth considering certain factors. It, it's interesting to note that guided reciprocal reading, shared reading and independent reading were all kind of defined as evidence-informed approaches mm. to the teaching of reading when they the way in which those things are teached sorry taught can be can vary so widely and also when if I may pick apart them individually in a moment when when what you notice about these things is that we need to maybe look at it at the body of research in a slightly more nuanced fashion so if I may talk about them one at a time so guided reading for example it depends what we mean by guided reading, because guided reading is one of these terms that has um, come to me in some cases to be almost meaningless. I've heard people talk about whole class guided reading, which is um, a complete contradiction in terms. Guided reading is tra traditionally de defined as small group teaching of reading. In effect, most often it comes to be taught with children in ability groups it doesn't have to be but the fundamental component of guided instruction is that you is that the teacher sits with and works with a relatively small group of students now under what circumstances is that a good idea well obviously sitting with a small group of students and working with just them is really effective for those five or six or seven or eight students but when we start to look at approaches that have small group instruction and take account of the outcomes of everyone else in the class, then the, as, as you, you know, it's kind of unsurprising to find that suddenly it doesn't seem quite so effective. So when it comes to guided reading, um, there's a small group instruction of any form. There are two ways to look at it. I think if you're setting up your classroom in such a way that you are always having small groups to work with, and, you know, that's kind of a default then I don't think the evidence base is there to kind of support that as a good idea. Professor Timothy Shanahan, his blog, Shanahan on Literacy, talks about the research into that in some detail in a really accessible way, if you're interested. But the key thing here is that that doesn't mean that small group teaching has no value, has no purpose. It's just that it should be contingent upon the circumstances in the room. So, for example, small group teaching of, of some kind of interventions, really valuable thing to do. Or even within a whole class situation, if I've got a group of learners who perhaps are struggling with reading fluency, uh, they are they require a certain level of support that isn't appropriate to the rest of the class, then I might organise my classroom so that in, in moments during the week, I am working with a small group. But I have to be cognisant of the, the lack of support that the rest of the class are getting at this point. The short version would be to say, just as with the teaching of mathematics or history or science or any other subject, if in doubt, try and teach as many pupils as you can at the same time, because it's by far and away the most efficient way 
to support pupils. We don't want to leave pupils unsupported for long periods unless um, unless absolutely necessary. And, and that's that fits in with the ethos of Curriculum for Wales in a um, really closely because we are very very focused here on raising standards for all mm. and for equity. So, and like you say, if you're just working with small groups, then where's the equity in that? Okay, so that's guided reading. What about the other? Reciprocal reading is um, fascinating. If you look at the research in a very kind of two-dimensional fashion, what you'll find is people saying reciprocal reading works. And if you dig into the research, um, so that means going to decent meta-analyses and then going into the papers behind those meta-analyses, what you find is that reciprocal reading, which is where you know a teacher sits down again with a small group of pupils, teaches them certain strategies, and crucially engages them in discussion of the text that's in front of them, you find that yes, that does work, but compared to what? The control groups in reciprocal reading are usually kids who are left to read completely on their own, so with no support, or at best, the control group are kids who are being taught, but being taught in a way that is demonstrably unaligned with what the evidence suggests about what reading comprehension is. So the teacher in effect says, I'm going to teach you how to find the main idea of a text. I'm going to model it with this text, and then you're going to go and do something on your own along those lines. Or I'm going to get you to read a very short bit of text, and then I'm going to get you to answer lots of questions to develop your, in inverted commas, skills of how to answer inference questions or summarizing questions as if these things are generic transferable skills, which, um, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, they are not. In short, reciprocal reading does work, but it works firstly for as an intervention with small groups, and it works in a way that means that we should really ask, well, what are the active ingredients here? And a sensible reading of, the res of this research into reciprocal reading or reciprocal teaching suggests that what makes it, what probably makes it effective is an adult sitting down with a small group of pupils and getting them to engage with the text that is in front of them. What's interesting is that when um, large scale studies of this have been done, as soon as you try and apply this as a structure to a whole class, all of the positive effects dissipate. Right. So, okay. so this is more about the teacher to pupil ratio than it yeah, is about absolutely. the strategies being used. It's about sitting a group of kids down and um, getting them to engage with the text that's in front of them. Now, further research, which really kind of dials into exactly what it is that reciprocal reading does compared to something similar, might show that the, the four kind of strategies for engaging with text, things like predicting, summarising, etc., are one of the key active ingredients for this. Um, and these are things that I think are worth teaching as strategies briefly to a whole class as well. But until we see more um, fine grained research into it, all we really know about reciprocal reading, I think, is that sitting pupils down in a small group, getting them to engage with the text is good for that small group of children, which I don't think is hugely revealing or will be surprising to any of your listeners. No. And again, it's the same thing as with the guided reading in that you're you're prioritizing a small group over the needs of the whole of the rest of the class absolutely uh, and one thing i've mentioned as well that one that blog that i mentioned by timothy shanahan if you if you search for shanahan on literacy and look for what he calls you know small group instruction what tends to be the case or what seems to be the case is that when you 
by default organize kids into groups of small groups of readers it is those who are most advantaged those who find reading take to reading most easily perhaps have most support that benefit most and it's those who struggle the most who benefit least it's like the the Matthew effect isn't it it? those who learn to read well early are advantaged more and more as time goes on and precisely, and you can think about that in terms of the struggling reader. If you are working with uh, with a struggling reader for only 20% of the week, what they achieve in that yeah. 80% of the week where they are unsupported, particularly if they're still at the stage where they're relatively disfluent, is probably going to be not a lot at best. And it might yeah. be that actually all you're developing in them are negative associations between the um the process of reading and you know how they feel about themselves because they're left to get on with something that they're going to struggle with completely um and you know i don't think that's perhaps an ideal situation and and then you're getting into issues like resilience and independence which we know are big issues in wales as well for teachers looking at curriculum for wales okay so guided reading reciprocal reading are um questionable in terms of being really effective research informed um strategies certainly if we're thinking about applying them to kind of like a whole class yeah yeah what about shared reading so again it depends what we mean by shared reading a whole group of definitions that we could apply here so i've seen shared reading refer to a teacher reading aloud to a class Mm -hmm. i've seen shared reading refer to whole class instruction where every kid in the room has the same text and there is uh, meaningful uh, questioning discussion and explanation and it sometimes it moves at pace sometimes it you know dives into a, an aspect of text in order to explore it and understand it better um, so really it depends what we mean uh, when it comes to ways of organizing classrooms there is very very little research that says, okay, we're going to organize a classroom in this way, and then going to compare it to how we might organize a classroom in a different way. Um, And so to say that shared reading is evidence informed, while I would actually advocate for reading aloud to pupils and whole class reading instruction, I wouldn't make I wouldn't make the argument that you can just in a blanket way say that that is an evidence where evidence informed way of teaching reading that in short, the devil is in the detail. So, and, and this is probably true of the three that we've talked about so far, and I no doubt independent reading as well when we get to it, is that um, when you're talking about how you teach reading across a country, we need to be really specific about the strategies that we're talking about, what they look like, how they can be replicated, because it doesn't take much, as we know, for uh, one person's idea of something to be um, slightly adapted. And therefore, when you get to... 10 people down the line it's not being as effective as where you started I mean, what's interesting though to, when we're talking about this being you know those listeners will know that I'm, i know maths is my background and in secondary as a secondary teacher that you know you wouldn't necessarily be aware of any of these you know particular strategies but when you think about how important reading comprehension is across every subject even at, you know key stage four in particular that you know the amount of information it's been really useful listening to you explain what the differences are and mm. the strategies you know very much from a primary focus of, of whole class but how we can use some of those strategies you know as, as a second as subject specialist within secretary i think is really important as well yeah i think there are certain principles that every teacher be they primary yeah. or secondary or if they work in a middle school that they really should grasp 
about reading, you know, about yeah. what reading development is and how we can facilitate it. So can I just yeah, can please I just dive in. pause it? I'm just going to try and corral the conversation because I, I, I want to get to independent reading. But then um, because, you know, this is what Estin talked about as being research informed. So we want to kind of debunk some of this and then get to the so what should we do instead? And those principles. But let's just talk about, first of all, independent reading. Sure. What does that actually mean? But in terms of what it could mean, Chris. Well, again, as with all of these areas, there's there's a kind of a bit of nuance here. You mentioned Matthew effect before. So, you know, the research of Stanovich. And what we see is that there is clearly an association between the amount of reading that a pupil does. And often this is associated with independent reading and how successful they are as a reader. Now, it's difficult to unpack that association and work out which way causality is running, if at all. But I think it's a fairly sensible thing to suggest that the more reading a pupil does, the better they are going to be at it. If we think about the theory that we can derive from like the rest of what we understand about reading. The question then becomes, well, what do we do about it? How do we use independent reading? Now, again, I go back to the work of Timothy Shanahan, not least because he's arguably one of the you know central um, experts on the subject of reading research. And his view on independent reading would be something along the, along the lines of when, when it's compared to any form or almost any form of actually teaching reading, it doesn't come off as well. So right. independent reading, great thing to do on some level, perhaps outside of school, but there is an argument that inside school, we can always be using that time better if the teacher is actually teaching reading. There is, however, a bit of nuance to this discussion that I'd like to kind of add in, which is that I still think that some level of independent reading in the classroom is really valuable. And, and here's why. And, it, and again, it comes down to kind of how we look at that research, because what the research does is take two ways of dealing with reading and then compares outcomes there and then. So it has to be relatively short term, me immediately measurable outcomes, etc. Well, I would say that because of the value of the amount of reading that we want pupils to do, one of the key things we want to do is to um, develop certain habits and certain dispositions towards reading. We want pupils to start thinking of themselves as readers. We want them to begin to enjoy and appreciate and learn from the independent reading that they do. And if they're going to do that outside the classroom, which certainly would be valuable, there's probably an argument, and I think a good one, that building up some of these habits in the classroom is a good idea as well. And I think there's also um, an argument about what we want schools to be for. So obviously, outcomes are really important, obviously. But equally, there is there always has to be an element of education that looks at just the, the sheer joy of being in school. And one of the great joys of being in school is thinking back to shared reading a moment ago, hearing a teacher read aloud a wonderful story or a wonderful book, but also having the opportunity for some quiet time to read a book that you're really into. And for some kids, it, it might be tempting to say, well, surely they can do that at home. But obviously it's not always the case that uh, every child does have a quiet place or um, a, a haven in which they can enjoy independent reading. So I think there are other arguments that relate to outcomes and some that also kind of go a bit beyond immediate outcomes as well as to why I do think independent reading has value. And I think it's really interesting when you think of what goes on in schools out there, because we, we've worked with a range of primary and secondary schools in Wales, 
and you find that particularly secondary schools because they know that reading is an issue and they're trying very hard to make a difference and they don't want to limit it just to English lessons you find a lot of them using things like drop everything and read mm -hmm. or they'll have um, you know uh, reading opportunities in tutor time which as you say absolutely have value and set that kind of standard for um, what reading is for and being a, a reading role model but when that becomes the only way that reading is kind of experienced in school it can actually cause more problems than it solves especially for those children who struggle with reading yeah and that's something re a really important caveat to this which is that you know i spent a big chunk of my career um working particularly with struggling pupils um i was you know in a situation where i was able to teach um to, to basically to ask for classes in which there were a number of struggling pupils or quite early at the start of my career where um where there was still setting for english and mathematics being able to say actually no can i have the, the lower set that's i just i just find it more i, I feel like i learn more um, with pupils um, under those circumstances but the point being that when we come to independent reading if a pupil is particularly disfluent they're at the stage where you put a book in front of them and they can't really um, read it well enough independently so that they can make sense of it they can begin to enjoy it then independent reading suddenly loses I would argue any of its value so we have to be really careful and and, and beyond losing any of its value as I mentioned earlier I think it can begin to be really detrimental for pupils to be expected to um, do lots of independent reading if they're still at the stage where they really struggle to read fluently and what yeah. tends to happen um, I worked as well as a teacher but for briefly I worked as a teaching assistant as well and I found that really poss possibly the most enlightening part of my career because I got to work with in lots of classes and work particularly with struggling students and what I saw time and again were pupils hiding their difficulties with reading and getting really effective at doing so and often that came down to what happened when they were asked to read independently um so yeah it's it's a really valuable thing um but you have to be really careful how it's used in the classroom okay so and i i would like to say i actually worked as a teaching assistant as well for a time being and it is children when we're talking about resilience oh my gosh that being so resilient to manage to find a way to hide the fact that they just hated reading yeah. couldn't read and really struggled with it it was shocking anyway so we, we've talked about um the the um what is being suggested as being a research form and maybe there are issues with that so what would you do instead what is a really effective way to teach reading comprehension Okay, I hope you'll forgive me for briefly, and I'll try and be brief with this, taking a little diversion into kind of the foundations that support reading comprehension. I won't go into huge detail, but it's the first thing to note is that there are certain foundations that are um, that are, are part of this. Now, they don't these foundations. Maybe foundations is the wrong metaphor because usually you have to lay the foundations first, and then you start looking at comprehension. And it doesn't have to to be this way. But bear with me in the analogy. It's um, so these foundations are things like decoding. So being able to recognize words. And so we need to teach pupils to be able to do that to a relatively um, high degree so that they can, as I say, recognize the words in the text so it can begin to flow. Which brings me on to the second of these foundations, the teaching of reading 
fluency. Often we talk about decoding and comprehension and forget about fluency, this bridge between the two of them. So teaching pupils to be able to not just recognize individual words, but to flow through text accurately um, reading words and, and reading if they're doing so out loud in a prosodic fashion, a way that sounds like a natural spoken voice. We can do that with things like repeated reading and through just a breadth of reading experience. And another foundation is the, the development of spoken language. So much of what I'm about to talk about depends on this vast well of understanding about the written language. And obviously there's a huge amount of overlap in terms of what we understand about the written language and what we understand about whatever spoken language it is that we use and whatever written language it is that we are reading in. So can I, can I just yeah, please interject do. there for a second, because this is something that we experience when we go out to schools an awful lot, is you'll go into a school and they'll say, right, well, we want to do extended writing because we know pupils writing isn't where it should be. So our first question is also is always, well, what's the reading like? And then, well, what's their oral language like? Because you they 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 kind of flow into one another, don't they? Oh, absolutely. There is huge overlap between them. Our ability to um to, to write is is again taps into that same vast well of understanding about language more generally. And we develop that yes, through spoken language, but also through um, experiences with written language, be that a child reading themselves or being read to. Now, this isn't to say that we can, you know, ditch our writing instruction completely and just focus on reading. Of course, that's, that's, that's obviously not the case, but it's certainly the case that these things, there's a great deal of overlap between them and expecting pupils to be uh, to write to a high standard when they really struggle with reading um, is usually a fairly kind of unfair expectation. Absolutely. So that we've got the kind of the the basis of um, what you need to be able to comprehend um, text. So what are the elements of comprehending texts? Sure. So I think the only place to begin is what we with what we shouldn't do. Um, if that's okay, and then I'll build on to what we should, because part of what we shouldn't do depends on how we think about comprehension. Now, it's tempting to think of comprehension um, as a collection of skills. If we think about how reading tends to be assessed, it tends to be um, assessed by seeing what pupils can do after they've comprehended something. So we ask them to retrieve information or we ask them to share an opinion or to summarize or whatever it might be, something that a pupil can do if they've comprehended. Now, this isn't doesn't mean that these things that you might be able to do after comprehending are the basis of comprehension. You know, they are something that you can do as a result, but they're not the thing in itself. And so what we end up often doing is trying to teach these um, outcomes directly rather than teaching what it is that comprehension is based upon and what comprehension is based upon is our understand is primarily our understanding of the written language that we are reading so that means um, the vocabulary that 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 uh, that we are reading at any given moment it means um, the concepts in the real world that that vocabulary is describing. It means phrases, metaphors. It means how words are organized within and between sentences. So we're talking about syntax as well, but also it's our understanding of text structures, things like genre, things like um, the kind of different expectations that we might have when we approach different kinds 
of texts, be they fiction or non-fiction. So in short, we need to think about reading comprehension as primarily developing pupils' understanding of their written language. Now, the challenge with that is if you are a school leader or if you're someone organizing a curriculum, it's basically impossible to set up a nice, neat tick list of stuff that kids can do because the nature of reading is that because it relates to our written language and because the, the written language, be it English or Welsh or whatever language you're reading in, because it's so broad and because it encompasses, in effect, everything that humans can understand, well, you can't put that into a nice, neat tick list. So what we're left with is either this complex reality, which is I want to teach pupils um, a better understanding of of their written of the written language in which we want them to engage, or this simplified falsehood, which is, oh, I want to teach them how to answer retrieval questions or inference questions. And there's no evidence that these have any kind of psychological reality. There's no basis to them as transferable skills. So what should we do? Well, in some ways, I think the best way to describe it is I think we should do what I suspect teachers would have done if they'd been completely left to their own devices, and which is give children whole texts, get them reading lots of those texts with us, and then engage in meaningful conversations, discussions about these texts, explaining things where required, asking questions to deepen understanding, and um, discussing things. Now, the devil's in the detail there, because then the question is, well, how, how much time do we spend exploring the text? How much time do we spend reading? How much time do we spend questioning? But the key thing to know is what we are trying to do. At no point are we really saying, oh, today I'm working on their inference skills. That doesn't really make any sense. Inference isn't a transferable skill as such. Inference is, like every other aspect of reading comprehension, is entirely context dependent. I, a pupil can make really complex inferences when they're five or six years old about stuff they understand and where they comprehend the language related to it. And, you know, 39-year-olds like me can completely fail to make certain inferences if you, we don't understand the language that's involved. So in short, we need to explore texts with pupils, mostly whole texts, so they get a grasp of text structure, though some extracts can be beneficial as well, especially where we seek to compare and contrast, but primarily it's meaningful exploration of text. There's a couple of other things that we achieve through that, or we can or should achieve through that as well, which is that we want to develop certain dispositions towards reading. We want pupils to be strategic. And what that generally means is we want them to be taking charge of their own comprehension. We want them to recognize that if they don't understand something, then maybe it's a good idea to reread or to ask a question. Or maybe if a text is particularly tricky, but they're just about making sense of it, it's a good idea to, at the end of a chapter, to summarize, to think, well, what did I understand of that? So we want them to kind of take responsibility for their reading. We want them to think strategically. We want them to maybe ask questions of the text as they read, particularly when it's challenging, and to reread and to summarise. But we also want to cultivate other kinds of dispositions. We want them, ideally, to be uh, to develop their own subjective sense of appreciation. What kind of texts do they enjoy? What do they find they learn from the most? We want them to develop kind of critical 
dispositions towards reading. We don't want them to necessarily take everything on face value. We want them to start saying, well, does this align with what I already know about the rest of the world? And that kind of aligns with the final kind of disposition I like to talk about. We want them to be curious about texts and more generally. And these are dispositions that we can cultivate. But thankfully, this kind of strategic disposition and these appreciative, critical, curious dispositions towards reading, I think are a quite natural consequence of um, teachers exploring texts with children in a meaningful fashion, where what we are seeking to do in any given lesson is getting pupils to understand the text that is in front of them. And this brings me on to one final point, which is that generally when reading is thought of as a set of skills that we can teach, or a set of transferable skills that we can teach, we tend to end up deprioritizing what we're actually reading. And because it doesn't really matter what we're reading if we're just trying to get them good at inference, is it? But that, of course, doesn't make any sense, as I've just described. In a kind of meaningful approach to reading, what I sometimes call like a content-focused approach to reading, what we read with pupils is as important as how we teach it. It is largely our curriculum for teaching. So rather than saying, oh, how well have you taught inference, we start looking at the breadth and the variety of texts that we're giving pupils the chance to engage with. Are they learning about um, different perspectives, different characters, different contexts? Are they learning about different kinds of text? Are they learning about the world more broadly from the texts that they read? So as I say, text selection becomes a an absolutely central um, idea in a meaningful approach to teaching comprehension. Something that you mentioned in your book that I think is really important to, to kind of understand is that you, you talk about reading comprehension as being a really active thing for the reader. Mm -hmm. It's something that um, the reader reads something and they actually create a mental model of what that text means to them. And I think that's a really... And it just reminded me, and I just wanted to uh, drop this in here, that um, I actually did linguistics, but I also did literature uh, as, as my degree. And I did critical analysis. And one of the critical analysis theories that we looked at was reader response theory. And it's this idea that uh, once a text is written, that it stops being owned by the author and it actually is owned by the reader. And one of the great things about doing uh, English literature language is that you can say pretty much anything you want about a text as long as you've got some evidence from the text and you can justify why you feel it's, it means that thing to you. And I think that's something that's really um, powerful for children to understand is that it, it's being, as you say, a reading detective and building that understanding saying, well, I think it's about this. I think the character thinks this because he says that and that is linked with this. It's that series of connections understanding the whole world isn't it yeah and i think this gets to the very heart of one of the most challenging bits about teaching reading comprehension because there are there are two two goals that we have in mind that kind of clash a little bit and i think the best reading teachers are aware of that clash and one of them is that it's absolutely the case that we want to as teachers have an idea of when we're teaching a text of what we want pupils to learn from it so if i'm teaching a text like Holes, which is a you know lovely book for kind of year five and year six. I've seen it used in secondary schools as well. Then I, I want to explore the idea of alienation. I want to explore the idea of injustice. I want to explore the idea of friendship. These are 
themes that I think are doubtless in that book. And we, we have to be not be afraid as teachers of when we're exploring a text saying, I'm choosing it for this reason, and I, I want pupils to take away X, Y, and Z. But we also need to be aware that that it shouldn't be the limit upon you know, what we're seeking to achieve. We also, and this comes back to these dispositions, so a critical, curious, appreciative disposition, a big part of that is subjective. We also want to be encouraging through the conversations that we have, we want uh, pupils to start saying, well, I, I'm not sure I agree with you on that one. I think this is this, or actually another way of looking at it is this. Now, one of the things that we can do to think about the former side of things is an approach called questioning the author. There's a wonderful, relatively brief book by um, Beck, McCowan, Kuchen and Hamilton, who, which, it, uh, which is called Questioning the Author. And there's one questioning the author 15 or 20 years on. Great book. What it does is it looks at this idea of how we can center the author in our discussions. It talks about other stuff, but primarily it does that as a way of saying to um, the, the pupil reading the book that someone wrote this. They were trying to communicate something. They had a purpose. They had an audience. And it's, and it's worth trying to engage with that. And it's worth recognizing how fallible the author is going to be and that we need to kind of reach out and meet them halfway. Now that kind of aligns quite nicely with that first perspective of, there are some things I want you to understand about this text. But beyond that, I think another thing we can do when we're having these rich discussions with pupils is to try and use questions that include the word might. I sometimes talk about you know the power of might. There's a big difference between asking, you know, what does Orwell mean here? And asking, well, what might Orwell have meant here? The first feels like an assessment. The second feels more like an invitation. Yeah. And the key idea here is where possible, it's not always possible, but where it is possible, you can start to signal to pupils that I'm interested in your ideas and they may be different to other pupils. I mean, very briefly, coming back to what you mentioned about comprehension as the construction of a, a mental model or a mental representation, this inevitably means that to any two um, versions of a text or versions of the meaning of a text that pupils come up with will be slightly different. You know, pupil A and pupil B will have ever so slightly or perhaps significantly different understandings of a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter or a text. And that's an inevitable consequence of them bringing to bear different bodies of understanding about the words that are in that text and the and the world that's being described um so that we can't, we, we need to kind of lean into that while bearing in mind um as i'm sure you did in your um course when you're talking about literature and linguistics bearing in mind that some positions relating to a text are more arguably justifiable to others and when we're deciding whether something, whether our comprehension is, as it were, correct or not. And sometimes there is no correct interpretation. But when we are doing that, what we're doing is thinking about kind of the language community that we're part of and thinking about, well, how would I, is this a justifiable position within that language community? I know we're getting into slight nuances here, but um, I think it's worth exploring. Absolutely. And uh, uh, it's really important that they, they, you do have those two views on a text the kind of the accepted um theme of a text and the possibilities for a theme on a text and the, the fact that there are going to be differences between both of those there are some things in your book 
that we really, really love, that we wanted to point out because we think they're absolutely awesome and I think that they're really valuable. The action plan for classroom teachers and reading coordinators, which just goes through a list of bullet points of things that those two roles might consider doing, really valuable for primary and secondary colleagues. You've got a tier two vocabulary list, which is not just relevant for primary. We know very many secondary colleagues would find that useful across the curriculum. There's Latin and Greek word roots, and there's also an example timetable for explicit vocab instruction. There's quite a lot of focus there on vocabulary. Why do why did you focus so much on vocabulary in those kind of extra bits? Um, I think vocabulary ends up having such a massive overlap with, or it's so central to this idea of what we understand about language. Of course, what we understand about a written and spoken language goes beyond you know, word and phrase definitions, as I mentioned before, into syntax, text structure, etc. But at the very heart of it is, what do words mean? What do phrases mean? Uh, what do particular metaphors or idioms, what do they mean? So thinking about how we can develop pupils' vocabulary is a really important thing to do. I mean, one of the key messages is that the vast majority of vocabulary development that pupils will um, experience happens implicitly it happens through conversations it happens through the teaching of the wider curriculum which is why I think I'd always be wary of pulling pupils out of a class for a vocabulary intervention because if if a curriculum is being taught well the development of pupils vocabulary is kind of embedded within that anyway um but so in at heart the reason why this the idea, idea of vocabulary development um I think is so important is because it's um, at the centre of understanding language. In terms of that kind of action plan for teachers and reading coordinators, the um, teaching reading and leading reading in a school or across a number of schools can often seem quite overwhelming and knowing um, what there is to focus upon, what there is to keep an eye on and what it is we might be able to target and prioritise I felt was um, a useful thing to do. With hindsight, there is a part of me that wish I'd taken that chapter a little further and said, look, if in doubt, start here. If in, if that's functioning, start here. But actually the feedback I've got from colleagues has suggested that, you know, maybe the way it is, is um, perfectly good as it is. Um, when it comes to sort of the tier two and the Latin and Greek root words, I think with the tier two stuff, Again, it, it goes back to those uh, at least three of those researchers I mentioned before, Beck, McCowan and Kuchen. So they wrote another book famously, Bringing Words to Life. Mm -hmm. And they basically said, look, when we're teaching um, vocabulary to kids, because so much of it is either implicit or embedded into the curriculum, we really should think about what we can target, what we can prioritise. How are we going to look at those important words that slip through the net? And that's really what tier two vocabulary is. It's the stuff that pupils aren't going to pick up for themselves or are less likely to pick up for themselves from their day-to-day -day interactions. But it's also not the vocabulary that we're almost automatically going to end up teaching in science or history or geography or whatever it might be. So a word like um, onomatopoeia, that very much has a home. It's going to be taught in English. But a word like nevertheless, what, what, what academic subject does that have a home in? It kind of works across all of them. It's useful potentially in all of them. And ironically, because of how this high utility of the word, it's that's also the reason why it ends up often slipping through the cracks. So this tier two vocabulary list, um, I put together by looking at various academic word lists 
and uh, the most common 2000 words in the English language and cross-referencing those and finding all of the words that could be defined as tier two and then pruning out the ones that I thought were perhaps not quite so suitable for primary students. And I ended up with a list of about 345. So in terms of teaching vocabulary, stuff we can prioritize, but we can also teach pupils about the structure of, um, of, of our written language. And in the case of English, um, it can be really profitable to look at chunks of meaning, morphemes, um, things like suffixes and prefixes, and common uh, chunks of meaning are built around these Latin and Greek root words that you uh, that you mentioned. And these Latin and Greek roots um, appear in more than half of all words that have more than one syllable in English. They're particularly valuable in subjects like science. They're all over the place. And we can start to support pupils to be word detectives by doing things like, you know, if you're teaching a word like extract, well, it's one thing just to explain what that word means and to get pupils to use it actively, to use a student-friendly definition, to retrieve it, etc. Lots of stuff that might help them to learn that one word. It's another thing if we start saying, well, actually, let's look at this, this bit tract and this bit X. When we talk about X, if we think about external or exterior, we're often talking about something coming out. And tract, if we look at words like tractor, a, a, a mechanical device that pulls things, or a protractor, something that we pull to tract on some level, it suggests that we're kind of pulling on some level. So to extract is to pull out. Now, the value of this is firstly, it adds meaning to these words that wouldn't otherwise be there to make them more memorable. But it also gives pupils a way to start dealing with other words that maybe no one is there to explain to them. So we can prioritize words but we can also start to help pupils be vocabulary detectives by looking at these chunks of meaning, morphemes, including Latin and Greek root words. And that, that was the one section that I went, that, that was the most useful for me as a, as, a, as a maths teacher. It would be particularly that, that element, but also talking about the tier two words, some of those words that might have a very subtle meaning, a difference in different subjects, you know, things like similar in mathematics and similar in English, have got a very slightly different uh, meaning as well. So it's been able to highlight those and, and address those with pupils too. Yeah, absolutely. So that idea of, um, I, I never pronounce this word right, polysemy, or um, spelled P-O-L-Y-S-E-M-Y. I believe it's polysemy, where we have polysemous words or polysemous. I've heard them pronounced both ways. I prefer the first. But where we have these words that um, have slightly different um, meanings. I think what's, what's really valuable here is recognising that even when they have those slightly different meanings in different academic areas, there's almost always some underlying um, similarity between yeah. them. And it's often that that relates to kind of the morphology of the word. So we can actually support the development of uh, people's understanding of these polysemous words via morphology as well. And by, you know, putting them into these uh, broader uh, contexts. Chris, we could, I certainly could, could talk to you all day. day about words and language and reading and, and so on. You have been a fabulous guest. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight into how we can look at reading in a slightly different way in order to get the best for our pupils, to get make them lifelong learners, lifelong readers, because obviously if you read well, you learn well. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. And um, well, we will talk to our listeners again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episodes. You can find us online at www.impact.wales. You can also follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Impact Wales. On Facebook and Instagram, search for Impact Wales. And on LinkedIn, search for Impact School Improvement.